Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Trust you've enjoyed our time in John together. Today we turn to John chapter 16. John 16, I think we're going to see this, that the Spirit conveys truth to His disciples for the world's conviction by Jesus' direction and for Jesus' glory. So let's read this again. That's a complex sentence. The Spirit conveys truth to Jesus' disciples for the sake of the world's conviction, by Jesus' direction, and for Jesus' glory. We're going to see this particularly in three different ways. Uh, Jesus speaks of coming persecution in verses 1 through 4. In verses 4 through 11, the second half of verse 4 through 11, uh, Jesus didn't speak in his, of his absence uh, because the Spirit was coming. And then finally, verses 12 through 15, Jesus still has more to speak by the coming Spirit. What we have here is Jesus' desire to say what he needs to say. Ever get in that place, whether it's with your wife or a coworker or someone else, you have words that you need to say. You've got something on your chest and you've got to get it off your chest. You've got to speak, uh, speak up about what it is that you need to get conveyed. Jesus has spoken, he is speaking, and he will speak according to this passage. He has spoken to his disciples, even in this upper room discourse. He is speaking to them in this upper room discourse, and he will yet speak as the recording of the New Testament is yet to happen. And so we have this situation where Jesus is going to speak the things he needs to speak. We're tight on time here this morning, and I want to dive right in into 16 uh, with us here this morning. In verses 1 through 4, we see that Jesus speaks of this coming persecution. Look at 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus speaks, excuse me, speaks. <laughs> There's a lot of high songs this morning, all right? He speaks to preserve. Jesus repeats the same idea in verse 1 and in verse 4, right? They kind of convey the same message. Verse 1 says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse 4 says, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So the same idea opens and closes this section. And so Jesus is speaking predictively in order to speak preservatively. He's going to preserve the faith of his disciples by telling them what's going to happen. Well, what is going to happen? Verse 2, he kind of mentions some very specific things, right? First, Jesus mentions the synagogues, right? He says, hey, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues. And if you went back to John chapter 9, you remember that the the man who was born blind, uh, he's... he's, trying to explain himself to the Pharisees and the rulers of this temple. And sure enough, they call upon his parents and his parents are afraid in John chapter nine, verse 22, they're afraid that the Pharisees will put them out of the synagogues. This is kind of a constant threat. 
And so these new men knew uh, that, that Jesus might, or uh, that the Pharisees might actually kick them out of the synagogues. But the second thing that Jesus says is that they might actually uh, lose their lives. That's what he says there at the close of verse 2, isn't it? Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That word translated service, latreia, that's the word used to describe kind of priestly service in places like Hebrews 9 and Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so Jesus is saying here that, that the, the synagogue rulers will be as likely to punish and persecute and put you to death as they are to make the temple sacrifice. Verse 3 tells us exactly why this is the case, right? And they will do this. They will do these things. Have not known the Father, nor Jesus. Religious leaders obviously knew who Jesus was. But notice here, Jesus says that they don't know him. They don't know him. Which shows us that Jesus is speaking of a deeper sense of recognition. It's not just that they can't recognize him, or they don't know who he is, or what his identity is. It's that they they refuse to worship. Last week, we saw that that Jesus told us that the world would hate us as it hated him. Specifically, this was because the world has not known the Father. That's what we saw in 1521. They didn't know the Father, and so they persecute Jesus, and they will persecute his disciples. But the new wrinkle is the specifics of verse 2. Jesus is telling these guys that, that, that following Jesus at this point will become increasingly costly. It would cost them friends and social standing. It would cost them uh, the patterns of their daily living and going to the synagogue. And eventually, it would cost all but one of them their very lives. But here's the question we have. Why, why is Jesus only bringing this up now? This feels like a little bit like when your kid comes home and it's 9 p.m., and they're in school, and they're like, I need to build a model of the Parthenon out of sugar cubes for tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Go to it, right? And Jesus is kind of dropping this in their lap at kind of the final hour. Why is Jesus only sharing this information now? Why couldn't this have been brought to their attention the day before or the day before that? Look at what Jesus says in this next section. Verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. Jesus didn't speak of his absence because the Spirit was coming. Look at verse 4 through verse 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. See, Jesus starts off and he says, uh, Jesus didn't share these things before because he was present with them, right? When Jesus was with his disciples, Jesus was the lightning rod that kind of took all of the criticism, right? You understand what a lightning rod is. Like if you have buildings out in the country, you build a lightning rod so that it attracts the lightning rather than the barns or the cows or whatever, right? That's a really bad explanation of a lightning rod, but you get my point. See, when Jesus is no longer present, the disciples will bear all of the brunt of this hatred that Jesus is describing. They will be his representatives to the world, and Jesus will not be present to bear all of that hatred. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse 5 that he is now going to the Father. This isn't new information. He's been telling us all through this upper room discourse that he is, in fact, going to the Father. So isn't it strange, this statement we see in verse 5? None of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus is saying, like, like nobody wants to know where I'm headed. Asked him. If we were to go back into John 13, Peter asks him, my Lord, where are you going? See, quite simply, what's happening here is the disciples aren't understanding what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is highlighting their lack of understanding by making this statement. None of you asks me, where are you going? Nobody understands. Jesus is speaking clearly about what is going on and what the game plan is. They still are sorrowful. Look at verse 6. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Let's think about this for a second. Jesus has unpacked for these disciples that when he goes, that they can love one another as he has loved them. He, he unpacks for them that he gives to them his peace. In John 15, we saw that he wants to give them of his joy so that they might have joy to the fullest. And yet still, here they are in the midst of all of this proclamation of good news. Sorrow has filled their hearts. See, Jesus highlights that their lack of comprehension is, is a reminder that they still don't understand what Jesus is saying. And this question of like, where are you going, is key for them to understand exactly what that hope is. Jesus is going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. And this is good news. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in verses 6 through 11, that Jesus' absence is actually advantageous. That's what he says there in verse 6. It's to your advantage that I go away. See, the disciples' sorrow will turn to advantage in the Holy Spirit. Look what he says there in verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. That's a good line when you're dropping your kids off at the nursery, right? It's to your advantage that I go away. There's snacks in there, I promise. See, Jesus recognizes that his disciples have this raw emotion, the sorrow that's filled their hearts. It reminds us of when in John chapter 11, Jesus comes on the scene after Lazarus has died and he weeps with Mary and Martha. He recognizes the pain and the sorrow, but he also has something better in mind. That the loss of Jesus will be the gain of the Holy Spirit. 
verse 7, it says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, naturally, we need to ask, how is it better for us not to have Jesus present with us? It's a pretty natural question. Maybe you thought that this morning, or at some time in your life, you said to yourself, you know what, I think I would be a better Christian if I actually saw Jesus with my eyes like the disciples. I think I would do a better job. I would be a better believer in Jesus if God just showed himself to me like the disciples saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. If God would just show himself glorious, then I would understand things better. I would be a better kind of Christian. But there's an inherent kind of logic in what Jesus is saying here for us to understand why it's better for Jesus not to be present and for us to have the Holy Spirit instead. See, the first thing is that Jesus has already told them that the Spirit would be in them. Not just with them, but inside of them. This is what he says in in John 14. Listen to this. He says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. This is him speaking to the disciples. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Isn't that different? Jesus, as great as it was to be around Jesus when he was on the earth, you were just that. You were around Jesus. You you could see him. You could smell him. You could hear him. But he wasn't inside of you. See, this highlights the second aspect of why it's important that the Spirit would come. See, if we understand our Bibles the way these disciples would have understood their Bibles... It's the spirit of truth that these people have been waiting for for centuries. I have just a litany of some passages from the Old Testament that I just want to read through quickly that would highlight the presence of the spirit and the hope of the spirit. Ezekiel chapter 11, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. Now listen to the effect. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of See, the Spirit is the presence of the heart of flesh that God gives us, right? Or Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. See, this is a part of the redemptive plan and purpose that the Spirit would come. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 14 and 15, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and a fruitful field is deemed for us. See, the Spirit brings this renewing and this newness. So these people should want the Spirit to come, right? See, it's advantageous to these disciples because it's God's plan for redemption to send the Spirit, and the Spirit would guide and direct God's people to this renewal and this newness that Christ has established. In fact, Jesus wants to highlight some of the work of the Spirit In these next verses, look at verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the the Spirit's job to bring conviction. 
It's the Holy Spirit's work to reprove and to chasten unbelievers and believers alike. Specifically, what Jesus tells us is that the Spirit will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. They need convicted of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. That is that conversion, if we're going to be converted to the faith, if we're going to leave our our pattern of relying on the flesh, conversion involves recognition of sin and subsequent faith in Jesus. We need to be convicted of our sinfulness, of our rebellion against God. But it's not just this conviction of sin, it's a conviction of righteousness. That conversion means turning to Jesus for righteousness, not just stopping doing the bad things, but also adding righteousness to our account, which comes through faith in Jesus. And it's not just about sin and righteousness, it's about judgment. That conversion means recognizing that our sin deserves punishment from God and that God has taken that punishment upon himself in Christ. This is why we need the Spirit here, because if you and I say words to sinful men and women without the Spirit, if the Spirit doesn't bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, they and we are just dead in the water. We need the Spirit to do this work of conviction. See, here's the truth this morning, is that only God can make Christians And the Spirit's role is conviction and new birth and sealing of new believers. If we were to go back into John chapter 3, right? Jesus had this secret meeting with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was this high and lofty Pharisee. And he comes and he talks to Jesus about his ministry. And Jesus tells this man who has massive authority in kind of the religious spheres, he tells him, you need to be born again by the Spirit. That anyone who's not born of the Spirit has no part in the kingdom of heaven. So it's by the Spirit who convicts and the Spirit who converts or gives new birth that we come to know Jesus. So parents, to bring it to a practical level, it's the Spirit's work to convict. It's the Spirit's work to to convict. Your job is to be faithful to the Scriptures. Husbands and wives, it's the Spirit's work to convict. And it's your job to be faithful to the Scriptures. If you're here this morning and you're trying to speak to a neighbor or co-worker about your faith in Christ, it is the Spirit's work to convict. And your job is to be faithful to the Scriptures. It's amazing how we kind of bypass the work of the Holy Spirit today. There's a man by the name of uh, Francis Schaeffer. He was a missionary to Europe in the 70s and, and kind of a writer. Uh, uh, he was like the John Piper of his age, if that makes any sense. But he said this. He said, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism nor the threat of communism nor the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us nor I would add today postmodernism or materialistic consumerism or visceral sensualism or whatever. Okay, just take a deep breath and just ignore what's happening there, right? All these are dangerous but not the primary threat. Listen to this. The real problem is this, the church of the Lord Jesus, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. 
the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Just hold on and bring that out of the 1970s and into 2020. The problem that the church faces is not the problems that surround us. The problem that the church faces is doing spirit kind of things without the presence of the spirit, trying to do them in the flesh, trying to accomplish these things sans the presence of God. See, we have sought to do conversion of sinners without making room for the convicting work of the spirit of God. You're saying, okay, that's great, Jason. How, how have we done this? I've done this in two different ways. First, we can strip the gospel of moral requirements so that the expression of the gospel is merely about God's love. The gospel expresses or expression uh, traffics in therapeutic categories, and we really want to try and make someone feel good about themselves. We want them to be self-accepting of themselves, and so we don't require any kind of change of their life or repentance, as the Bible would say. What we do instead is we just say, no, Jesus loves you and he's died for you. Not died for your sins, not died to forgive. He's died for you as an expression of his love. You see how we cut the knees out of the gospel when we speak that way? There's no sense of need other than that I would feel whole and good about myself. A second way that we do this is sometimes we we try to become the spirit and bring the conviction to them, right? We can overstate God's moral requirements to the detriment of the solution which the gospel brings. See, Paul told, told us this analogy in Galatians 3. He says that the law was like a tutor. It's like a tutor that's meant to lead us to knowledge, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so when I heard the restrictions of the law, when I heard that I should not covet or I shouldn't uh, lie or cheat or steal or whatever else it tells me, that that was meant to lead me to this knowledge of my need for Jesus. Now imagine if you sat down with a tutor and the tutor was supposed to teach you things and, and the tutor sat down with you and only told you how stupid and incapable you were. Imagine sitting down with someone trying to learn calculus and the tutor just said, you can't learn calculus because you're dumb. You're so dumb you can't learn this stuff. It's too beyond you. Imagine also a second tutor that would come in and say, Let's take a look at your test. Here's where you missed this answer. And here's the right answer. See, we tend to use the law to bring about shame rather than conviction. We tend to use the law to bring about shame rather than conviction. Paul said this in in 1 Timothy 8. He says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If we use it in accord with its intention to lead us to Jesus, that's what lawful, right, good use of the law is. We shouldn't shy away from saying, hey, by the way, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife, and you shouldn't tell lies, and you shouldn't do all of these other things. Rather, we should say, but there's hope. Because you broke God's law, there's Jesus. And Jesus forgives all of those wrongdoings. The one who perfectly performed the law now stands before the heavenly father and advocates on all of his people's behalf. So that if you have faith in Jesus, he speaks before the throne of God of his righteousness on your behalf for your sake. 
See, there's a redemptive use of the law. And there's a condemning use of the law. And we want to be careful about which we bring. See, the question that faces us now in this text is how? How are we to see the world convicted? How are we to do this? See, Jesus has highlighted that the Spirit will be helpful in conviction, but what tools have given his people to work with the Spirit, right? And if you remember back at the end of chapter 15, Jesus tells us that the Spirit will bear witness to him and that his disciples will bear witness to him. And so there's this kind of uh, idea that the Spirit will bear witness through the work of the disciples. But what tools is Jesus going to give his disciples here that they can bear witness and see this convicting work of the Spirit done? Look at verses 12 through 15 that Jesus or Jody read. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice at the outset in verse 12, Jesus says he can't say everything right now. what he says. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's worth noting as we kind of go back into our passage. In verse 1, Jesus says, I have said these things to you. And then in verse 4, I have said these things to you. And then again in verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you. He's got these things that he wants to convey. He has conveyed. But when he gets to verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you. There's some information that Jesus just can't convey right now. He says in verse 12 exactly why this is the case, because they cannot bear them. They can't, literally the languages, they can't lift them. It was a couple months ago or years ago, I can't remember, but we had the baptismal up on stage. And we were filling it with water. And there's a number of engineers that attend here. And what started to happen is we filled it with water. It got weightier and heavier. And somebody, one of my engineer friends came up and they said, that's, that's a lot of weight you're putting on the stage there. And it was like all, every other engineer in the audience just started to hear that and started to work their way toward the, the front of the thing. They wanted to have a conversation about how heavy it was and whether it could bear the weight up here. And I just kind of slowly kind of sifted my way back to the back of the crowd and let them work on it, right? See, Jesus is saying, you don't have the equipment to bear the weight of what I need to say to you. See, the truth is, these, these men, these disciples, without the Holy Spirit, didn't have what it took, took to handle the thoughts that Jesus wanted to share with them. It's like if he were to say that, it would just kind of drop out into the air and, and never land anywhere with them. It's seen in the remainder of this chapter. See, the confusion that comes about with these disciples in verses 17 and 18 and 29, 29 these disciples start to, to talk to one another and they're saying, what on earth is Jesus even talking about? I don't understand what he's saying. 
But notice that in contrast with what happens in verses 13 through 15. So Jesus is describing verse 12. I can't say these things to you because you can't bear them. But verse 13 gives us hope. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Notice here, it's all the truth, right? There's no part of the truth that's lacking. There's no part of what Jesus wants to say that he's not going to be able to say through the Spirit. And so we should have confidence that what got recorded for us here is everything that Jesus wanted to convey to us through the Spirit. But secondly, it's by the Spirit's presence that Jesus will convey these things. Jesus had much to say, but the Spirit will guide them into all of it. That is, by the power of the inspiration of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit would use human authors to put together these 27 books of the New Testament, 66 books of the Bible, so that Peter says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is, whenever the New Testament writers are are writing, the Holy Spirit is present and active to superintend their words so that the result, Paul could say, was inspired. It was breathed out by God. We have this amazing thing sitting in our laps that's been guided by the Spirit. It's been directed by Jesus. It was given to Jesus by the Father, and now it lands with us so that we have all the truth. There's this kind of thing that's happening here, right? It's like a a divine game of telephone. So that the Father gives everything He has to the Son, and the Son then kind of translates that to the Spirit so the Spirit can superintend these New Testament authors recording it for us. That's what happens here, right? The Spirit speaks what Jesus speaks. Verse 13, whatever He, the Spirit, hears, He will speak and will declare to you. But Jesus also received that from the Father. Look at verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I I said I will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's great, Jason, you say. That's great that the disciples heard directly from the Spirit. That's great that Jesus conveyed that truth through the Spirit. But what about me in 2022? What about us here and now today? Does the Spirit still guide me into all the truth? Because that sounds kind of a, you know, just over-spiritual. Sounds kind of mystical. It sounds kind of just far off. See, this morning, Christian, if you are in Christ, as a derivative of what is being said here, the Holy Spirit is still guiding His people into all the truth. God is actively guiding His people even today into all the truth. See, I believe in what the Holy Spirit, what theologians would call the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That when we open the Scriptures, if the Spirit of God is in us, He brings those truths to our mind. It helps us to understand them and internalize them. I believe He's guiding us and delivering us into all the truth Maybe in a different sense, but still actively doing that today. See, what the disciples experienced in the first century would be called revelation. And what we experience here in the 21st century would be called illumination. Revelation was the recording of these thoughts and ideas from the Spirit. These things were coming down the the pike. 
dark as it were, they were recording them. And we now, looking back at those words, are experiencing the illuminating work of God in the Spirit so that we understand, so that we have hope. I think this is true because we see it in passages like Philippians 3. Paul says this. He says, let those of you who, excuse me, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Spirit guiding, leading. See, Paul has confidence to say this to the Philippians that the Lord will show you where you're wrong. And so here, we have this statement of illumination. The Spirit is making known to us in 2022 what He has already said, what He has already spoken to His faithful servants. And you and I can bank upon these words. So you say, so what? What does any of this mean for today, for us? We have these words. We have the convicting work of the Spirit. We have this work of revelation of the Spirit. And when we bring those two ideas together, we recognize that it's the, the words that the, the Spirit spoke to these disciples that would also bring conviction to the world, right? Paul summarizes it this way in Romans 10. He says, uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through what? Through the word of Christ that God uses his word to bring about the conviction of those who don't know him to bring about the conversion to the faith in Christ, right? And so this morning, as we look at these words, we, we walk away from, this, from them with a sense that the spirit is accomplishing something as he's recorded his words and as he's bringing conviction. Now, there's something else I want to bring out for us here this morning that I think is important. You and I, as, as we've looked through the book of John, uh, there's been this theme that's kind of been swelling up. John chapter 1, if we go back to John chapter 1, we might remember that uh, John said this as an introduction. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and a guy named Jonathan Pennington kind of just unpacked this from the book of John. And he said that this word, this dwelt, it went tabernacled, right? It was the idea of like putting up a tent in the middle of. And you say, well, God did that, didn't he? In Exodus chapter 25, God described what it was uh, for, for Israel to dwell in the midst of God. And so God had them build this tabernacle, this tent in which God was to dwell, and we see this secondly in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we see this statement where Jesus is saying, hey, um, you know, tear down this temple and I'll build it up again in three days, right? So Jesus has been described as the dwelling place of God, and now he's describing himself as the dwelling place of God, and he's saying, and it's going to be torn down, right? This temple is going to go away. In John chapter 4, we see this conversation with this woman at the well, and she's very concerned about where we should worship. Should we worship here in Samaria on our mountain where Jacob's well was, or should we worship on the mountain in Jerusalem? And, and 
then Jesus comes back at her and he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you will worship the father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, right? You don't worship through the tabernacle. You don't worship through the temple. You don't worship on this mountain. I am the place, as Jesus is saying. He's inviting them constantly to come and trust in him. He's saying things like John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So this section is is characterized by this presentation and invitation of Jesus saying, come to me, come trust in me. I'm the meeting place with God. I'm the temple. I'm the tabernacle. You come to me to know God. And when John 14 gets written and Jesus says, I'm going away. It's like we lost the place of God. The Son of God was going away. We lost the temple. We lost the tabernacle. God was no longer dwelling with us. Until he says, I'm sending the Spirit. See, what the Spirit does is he takes hardened sinners like you and me. He fills us up so that we become the temple of God. So that we become the means by which God relates to his world. You, Christian, if you're in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus, you're filled up with the Spirit, right? You, you're the place, the meeting place between man and God. And, and now as the Spirit's using your words, calling to mind the Scriptures that He's given to you, that's the thing you're doing. You are the temple. The temple of Christ is torn down so the Spirit can fill His people. and You and I might be that connection between God's world and himself. See, Christians, we were made, we were made to live by the Spirit's presence. We were made to live by the Spirit's presence just inwardly and outwardly. Just break that down for a second. Inwardly, you and I are needy of the Spirit's life-giving words as portrayed in the Scriptures. Christian, you cannot live without these words. You cannot live without these words. Jesus called us to abide in Him. He says, if my words abide in you, He qualifies it according to His Scriptures. We need His words. You and I need the sustaining power of God made available through His Scriptures. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to lay a burden on some of us here this morning. I remember when Jody, we had young kids. I would come home, and, and she had just been crazy busy all day long. There's diapers to be changed and spit up to clean up or whatever else you guys do all day. There was not a 10-minute period wherein she could sit down with a Bible in her lap. That's a real thing. For young moms, that's a real deal. For some of us, uh, for some of us men, it's like our jobs are just requiring more and more and more of us. And so we, we just don't get free space in our days. So I'm not laying a burden on you that, that you can't bear. But what I am saying is we have to find creative ways to put ourselves beneath the words of God. 
maybe for the young mom, it's the, the verse card written and pasted where you wash dishes so you can reflect on the promises of God as you're doing something else because that's the, the quietest 10 minutes you get of your day. And maybe for, for us men who are working and, and consistently applying ourselves, maybe we can, we can work out a place where every three days we find an hour to sit with the Word of God, to sit beneath the Word of God, and we can be fed and sustained. And we trust that God will sustain us for those next three days until we can find more space. Maybe it's the uh, hearing of the Bible as we're, we're listening to the Bible being read or whatever else it might be. Let me just give this warning, though. Do not be content to hear someone else partake of the Scriptures for you. Don't be content for someone else to partake of the Scriptures for you, for you to kind of get a second-hand whiff of what the Scriptures say. And we do this sometimes when we hear lots of preaching. Some of us, are, are, we download a lot of preaching, and we, we listen to a lot of preaching rather than digging into the Scriptures ourselves. You can't replace that discipline. There's no pastor in the world that can feed you and sustain you by allowing you only to engage his thoughts from the Scriptures. Does that make sense? You know, it's worth noting that every time a, a mom bird comes into the nest and chews up the word worms and spits it into their baby's mouths, eventually the baby grows up to eat the worms itself. That was a really gross analogy, but I just want you to think about that for a second. Right? We grow beyond that season where someone else is interpreting the Scriptures and engaging the words of God for us. And we want to submit to the words of God ourselves as the Spirit applies them to our lives and allows them to give life to us. Can I just encourage you in this moment, too, to memorize Scripture? When we memorize the Scriptures, the Spirit has direct access to bring those Scriptures to mind so that we might live them out in real time in life. You know, sometimes when we get up in the morning, we sit down and we read a Scripture passage, and we understand it, and we know it, and then we walk away and we forget it. When you memorize the Scriptures, the Spirit can bring those things to your mind in the midst of the situation you face. Just something to think about. Inwardly, we need the words of the Spirit, but outwardly, we need His power of conviction. We need the Spirit to work in those that we speak to. We need the Spirit when we're at our community group. We need the Spirit to, to use those words that we speak to encourage another brother or sister across the room. We need the Spirit after this sermon is done, as we interact with one another, to be encouraging and loving and kind. We need the Spirit to speak to those for us as we uh, proclaim the gospel to others who don't know Him. We need the Spirit to bring that Word to life, to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. We need the Spirit to kind of navigate this world that we're in. This is a call for us now to, to pray for those who we share with, to pray uh, for those unbelieving people, right? I think uh, about a year, a year and a half ago, we challenged you to, to find three individuals that you would pray for consistently, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we just want to pray for them. We want to pray that the Spirit brings conviction to their hearts, that we have boldness to share the gospel message with them. Finally, we want to share the scriptures as we have capability with those who don't know him, right? We want to let the word of God do the work of God and the people of God 
So we articulate what God has said in the scriptures. And we allow the spirit to bring about this conviction. You ever met someone who's trying to to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life? I've done it. It doesn't go well, right? I've been in counseling rooms where I've tried to bring conviction to someone for something that they've done. And I know that they need to recognize that that sin was not just wrong in front of other people. It was an offense before God. And there's times where I can just kind of try and put them in a spiritual headlock, as it were. And I'm just trying to wrestle them down to this work of conviction. Not realizing that all the while, if this spirit was going to do this work, it was going to come through his scriptures and through his word. That I could rest. I could go to bed at night. I could put my head to the pillow, recognizing that I had been faithful to the words of God. And the spirit had either chosen to bring conviction or chosen not to bring conviction. Right? That being said, what we need more than anything now, as Schaefer said, is a reliance upon the Spirit of God to do the work of God. We need faithful men and women who will hold fast to the Scriptures that God's given us. We need faithful men and women who won't be ashamed to speak those Scriptures, to, uh, to speak with boldness. So I want to pray this morning that God brings that about, that He allows us to be a people who rely upon His Spirit to do the work that He wants to accomplish. Would you pray with me? Where we trust now that you, Father, would do the work that you choose to do. Even now, Lord, as, as we preach these words, we trust that your Spirit will do the work that you want to do. Even now, Lord, we, we know that you have a desire, that your Word never returns to you empty, that it always accomplishes that which you purpose and the thing for which you have sent it. So, Lord, we trust now that you would use your Word for your work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.